All right, I, I can see how that might have seemed like a difficult uh, passage to read around Christmas time. Um, but we're actually in the book of Luke. So if you'll take your Bible and open up to Luke chapter 3, and we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we've come to verses 18 through 20. And so I want us to, to look at Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 18 through 20, and uh, talk about a problem. So if anyone asks you what we talked about at church today, you could say we talked about a, a, a problem. And actually, I think uh, verses 21 through uh, chapter 4, verse 13 is part of the solution, or at least it gives a framework for understanding the solution. So you're, you're only going to get half of a, of a sermon, really, today. But it is a, a big problem, and it is worth thinking about. And to understand the problem, you're going to have to first understand the goal of Luke. So uh, you might remember that Luke is writing this gospel to help us be certain. He tells us that back in chapter 1, verse 3. And that is going to be the application of almost all the messages throughout the gospel of Luke, actually. Certainty. You need to be certain. I want to help you be certain. These are reasons you can be certain that... What happened to Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises about what the Messiah would do. And uh, that is an important application, actually, whether it feels like it or not. But you, uh, you need certainty. And the, the truth is, the world all around you knows it. They know you need certainty. I, I mean, if you think about all the energy the world spends trying to get you to be certain about the story they're telling you. Uh, because they are telling you a story, for sure. The world has a story that it's telling you. It's a story about who you are and why you're here and what your problem is and what the solution is. And the world goes to a lot of effort to get you to be certain about the story they're telling you. So I think about that almost every time we watch a movie with our children, as an example, because how many movies? It feels like almost all of them are about believing in yourself. That's like the message of almost every children's movie. And what is that? That is one of the ideas out there in the world about the solution to the problems you face. It's part of the story. The world tells you about salvation, really. The answer to your problems is believing yourself, believing in yourself. And the world spends all this money making movies to help you be certain about that, that idea, to the point where you don't even think of it as an idea anymore. It is uh, just a fact. And they work at getting you to be certain like that because if you are certain, if you really believe that is the solution to your problems, it is going to impact the way that you think and the way that you live your life. Certainty is important. And Luke knows it's important when it comes to what the Bible says about what God is doing through Jesus. Because what the Bible says about what God is doing and going to do through the Messiah is huge. And so if Jesus really is the fulfillment of all of that, he is literally the most important person who exists. Your entire eternal future depends upon him. Nothing is the same. I mean, if someone said an asteroid the size of Mars was going to hit the Earth tomorrow, that would shake things up. And this is that big. What we're saying about Jesus is that big in, in a good way for people who are in a right relationship with Jesus. But it doesn't help you much right now if you're not certain. We need to be certain. And at first, reading the Gospel of, of Luke, it seems like we have good reason to be certain. If all you had was chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 17, the part we've studied so far, you would think, what's the problem? Because there's all this amazing stuff going on. And you read about these angels and uh, miracles, and prophecies, that's chapters 1 and 2. And then chapter 3, you read about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist looks really good, I'm telling you, in verses 1 through 17. This is the, 
the kickoff to his ministry after the introduction to Jesus in chapters 1 and 2. Now it's, it's getting started. And verses 1 to 17 of, of chapter 3, it, it looks like it's all going according to plan. It's just smooth like that. Because first Luke shows us how God said what was going to happen before the Messiah appears is revealed in the Old Testament. And then he's like, look at John. And he shows us that it happened. What God said was going to happen, happened. God said it's going to begin in the wilderness. It's in the wilderness. God said he's going to call his people to repent. John calls his people to repent. And God says there is going to be a kind of national repentance. And it kind of looks like at first there is a, a, a kind of national repentance, or at least the beginnings of it. And so it's like up to this point, if you've got your Bible open and you're, you're trying to track along with how God says he's going to rescue his people in the Old Testament, and then you're looking at what was happening with John and Jesus in the New, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of reasons to be uncertain, actually. Certainty seems pretty easy. God makes a promise. God keeps the promise. What's the problem with that? Why would we, why would we struggle? The problem is verses 18 to 20. <laughs> That's today. The, the, the problem is, if we keep reading the story from this point on, God's plan doesn't go the way we think it would, or maybe even think it should. Take what happens to John as an example. Because here he's prophesied about in the Old Testament, and, and then he does what the Old Testament prophecies say he would do. And the crowd responds in this absolutely amazing way like even unique to the story of Israel, if we know it so far. And then he responds to the crowds by glorifying Jesus. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. It's like point for point. This is how you would, would write the story of salvation, pretty much. And then Luke says what happens next, verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. But... And that tells us there's an issue coming. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Which is just so shocking, right? It's like, wait, what? I mean, stop and feel it for a moment. What just happened? John fulfilled the Old Testament. John preached good news. And then what? John got locked up. He got put in prison. You know, it's not really a difficult passage in terms of exegesis or just kind of understanding the words there on the page. It's not really a complicated text, but it does point out a super challenging reality, a kind of problem that we're going to be faced with time and time again as we read the Gospel of Luke. And I think, really, it's a reason we struggle with certainty about what God's doing through Jesus. This is the problem. We struggle. One reason we struggle is because God often doesn't work the way we think he should. John's doing the right thing. John's fulfilling the Old Testament. John is thrown in prison. That doesn't seem to, to match up to us. That's not the way we think things should go. Because most of us, we kind of have a deep down assumption about how things are supposed to work. And honestly, that assumption is pretty much glory now. So if it doesn't seem like it's working, it's not working, right? If I can't clearly explain how God's doing something, that he must not be doing anything, right? Wrong. From the beginning, Luke makes clear God does not accomplish his plans the way we would expect him to. In fact, the reality is that often God achieves his purposes the exact opposite way that we as humans would expect him to. And I can't tell you how many times I'm going to say that same thing over and over again because it's a theme in Luke, the whole book. But it's such an important theme. If you're going to understand much about the Christian life right now, and if you're going to understand about, 
much about how God's working in the world right now, you have to understand that God is working in the world right now to achieve his purposes in a way that is totally different than the way we naturally would think he would. Because for the most part, he's doing it through suffering, through shame, through rejection, and through persecution. Like here with John, again as an example. Because John, as we've been saying, was a great man. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus says he was the greatest. This was a great man with a great message, a message of significance for the entire world, universe even. He was so important that parts of the Bible were written about him before he was even born. When John went to have devotions, if he opened up the Bible to have devotions, he could literally read about himself. There were angels who showed up to announce his birth. He was called from before he was born. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. This was a godly, faithful, chosen man who did exactly what God wanted him to do when God wanted him to do it, and he did it well. I mean, if you were to make a checklist for godly ministers, John would meet all the requirements. Called by God, check. Given a message by God, check. Faithful to preach that message, check. Uncompromising, check. Sacrificial, check. Holy, check. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, check. Humbly pointing people to Jesus, check. John basically did everything right, and yet in spite of that, or maybe better because of that, John the Baptist was thrown in prison. Luke chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. John preached the gospel, and John got locked up. And the thing is, John's just a start. That's why I'm pausing here. Because this is not a one-time deal, really. As we keep reading, we're going to see this is going to be something that Jesus has to keep teaching his disciples over and over again. Once we get to Luke 9, especially. Because they're thinking the Messiah has come. And so it's on. Glory now. That's why they're going to always be arguing about which one of them was the greatest, because they're thinking it is time for us to rule. And we're going to see that Jesus has to keep telling them, actually, no, what is going to happen is that most of you are going to die terrible deaths. That's why he says you have to pick up the cross to follow me. He's not simply speaking metaphorically there. He's telling them, as you go out there to preach the good news of the gospel, you are thinking glory now, but the reality is many of you are going to experience violent opposition from wicked men as you confront them with their sin. Which is, again, maybe a little surprising after what we were reading in Luke chapters 1 through 3. Because I know we're used to this, and so we know how the story goes. And sometimes I think we're like people who have memorized the solution to the math problem and forgotten that how to do the math problem. So we think we understand because we know the solution to the math problem. We can say the right number, but we, we, we haven't done the work of actually doing the math problem. And that's what we're trying to do as we work through the Gospel of Luke, because what Luke says in chapters 1 and 2 is, is awesome. If you think about Mary and the way she's anticipating salvation and Zechariah and the way he's thinking things would go, Mary says, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Zechariah says, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. And they said that because that's what they were expecting. Which doesn't sound like John getting locked up. You know? That's the problem. That's part of why this gospel was written. And, and, and Luke's just so honest about it. He doesn't hide it. In fact, maybe the best illustration of the problem I'm trying to get you to think about is what the angels say in Luke chapter 2, verse 13, when Jesus is born. So you look back there, and we're going to be hearing it a lot at Christmas time. They say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. And then you know what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 51? If you, if you turn there, Jesus says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. 
which are both passages in Luke, right? So this isn't a contradiction, but it is a question. You understand? You following me? How does that fit together? Don't be so smart that you don't appreciate the gospel, like what Luke's doing. He wants you to struggle with that. How does that fit together? And I'm not giving you Luke's final answer to that question right now. And you know why? I'm not giving you the final answer because there's a whole gospel here to answer that question. But I am telling you, showing you at the beginning, from the beginning, Luke wants you to know that right now the good news of the gospel is going to be attacked by wicked men. And that's illustrated in the way Herod responded to to John, which is actually quite a story. And we don't get it all here in Luke. We just get a couple verses, but we do get a few hints in those verses that help us get the picture. First, Luke tells us Herod was a tetrarch. And you remember that from verse 1 even. And this Herod, you might also remember, is the son of Herod the Great. So there are a number of different Herods in, in the Bible, and they can be a little difficult to keep track of. Herod, Herod, Herod. But the the father of the Herods was Herod the Great. And he had power over all of Judea and Israel. He was, you might say, the king of the Jews. But after he died, which was a little while after Jesus was born, Rome divided the area that he ruled over into four different um, sections or provinces, you might say, which were then ruled over by four rulers. And so this Herod was not Herod the Great. He was someone named Herod Antipas, and he was ruler of a fourth of the land of Israel. And he's the Herod that you're reading about most of the time as you read the Gospels. And Luke tells us specifically that he was ruler over an area called Galilee, where John had been doing ministry for a while. In fact, Luke here in chapter 3 is basically giving us a summary of the highlights of John's ministry. So this is not what we're reading in Luke 3, all happening in a day. John the Baptist's ministry probably lasted somewhere around two years, from 27 AD to 29 AD or 30 AD. And chronologically speaking, in terms of order, what Luke says about John being thrown in prison actually comes maybe six months after what we're going to read next about the baptism of Jesus. So you see in verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and we know John was the one doing that baptizing. And so their ministries overlapped somewhat, Jesus's and John's, which means verse 19 is out of chronological order. In fact, the, the Gospel of John tells us there was a time when people were leaving John to listen to Jesus, and John wasn't bothered by that at all because it fit with his ministry vision. John was happy for Jesus to increase and for him to decrease. But back to Luke chapter 3, the point is that even though this is not the chronological order of how it happened, Luke puts this note about John being thrown into prison here at this point as he tells the story because he's summarizing, basically. And he's going to launch into this full-blown look at Jesus' ministry from this point on. But what we do know of John's ministry during this time up to this is that before he was thrown into prison, he was having a tremendous impact where all these people are coming out to hear him preach and to be baptized. And there was even a group of people who were sitting under his teaching and who had become his followers. John had disciples, and we read about them sometimes in the Gospels. Andrew, uh, Peter was a follower of John the Baptist before they turned to, to follow Jesus. And John's ministry, obviously, as we've seen, was causing people to ask questions about what he was doing out there. And not just everyday people like Luke records either. Uh, the crowds asking if he was the Messiah. The Gospel of John tells, that, tells us that news of his ministry had reached the capital city of Jerusalem and that the Jews there had sent priests and Levites all the way out from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you exactly? And so John was, at this moment in time, incredibly popular. And yet, while sometimes people get popular for only telling people what they want to hear, John wasn't like that. He was direct, and he was bold, and he was specific, and not just with people who liked him either. He was like that even with people in positions of great power, like Herod, because Herod Antipas had the kind of power that a king had, basically. He was a little like a, a dictator under Rome. As long as Rome was getting the money that they wanted and there wasn't a lot of fighting, they were happy. And Herod was brutal. He came from an absolutely brutal family. These were not your sweet little tame dictators, in other words, benevolent dictators. These were the kind of men who didn't have a problem killing children. When Herod's father thought maybe there was a Messiah, 
who was born in Bethlehem, he went and killed all the male children under two. These were wicked, ruthless men, and it would have taken courage to stand up to a man in power like that, obviously. And there's a sense in which you might not even have thought that John would have felt a responsibility towards Herod, because Herod wasn't even a Jew. He was, uh, on his father's side, an Idumean, who were descendants of the Edomites, who apparently were descendants of Esau. And on his mother's side, he was a Samaritan, part of that cursed race, according to the Jews. And he acted like it. Because when he became ruler of Galilee, he seems to have intentionally made a lot of Jews angry because he built a city on the side of the Sea of Galilee that he called Tiberias after the Roman emperor. And he built that city on a cemetery, which was incredibly offensive to Jewish people because any contact with the dead made them think of themselves as ritually impure. And to make matters worse, he went on from there and he decorated his palace with all sorts of idols as well, violating one of the, the most important commandments. So Herod had power, and he was acting like a pagan, but neither his power nor his race nor his obvious arrogance kept John from addressing him, and as we see, addressing him specifically. Verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, and that's a stern word, reproved. It's sterner than exhort. He exhorted the people, verse 18, but he rebuked Herod publicly, probably, and maybe for a number of different things, because Herod was pretty wicked, and there were lots of things you could have confronted him about, but primarily John was reproving Herod because Herod had taken Herodias as his wife, and this is a little bit of a Middle Eastern soap opera, actually, because Herodias wasn't Herod's first wife. He had married a daughter of one of the kings of the Arabs, and the king's name was Aretas, and you can read about him, actually, in the book of Acts. Aretas was the one in charge of the area around Damascus when Paul became a Christian. And Aretas had a daughter who Herod probably married for political reasons, but for some reason he wasn't satisfied with her, and she ended up running away from Herod back to her father, which created this tension, and even a few years later, uh, a big battle. But she ran away because Herod had begun committing adultery, with his brother's wife. And this is a little bit sick, actually, but the original Herod, Herod the Great, had 10 wives, and so he had lots of children. And among those children, uh, two of them were named Philip. They had, he had two sons with the same na name, Philip. Uh, they had different mothers, of course, but we read about one of them in Luke 3. He was Tetrarch of Iturea, and the other Philip we don't read about here because he had moved back uh, to uh, Rome. He was more of a private citizen. He was a business person in Rome. And this Philip, the, the private citizen, had married one of his half-brother's daughters. So he married his niece, in other words, which is a, a scandal no matter where you go. It's incest. But what, what Herod Antipas does is even worse, because while he's still married to that Arabian princess, he travels to Rome, and he meets Herodias, and then seduces her, even though she's his niece who's married to his brother, and she ends up leaving her husband, and when Herod's wife finds out, she leaves him. And Herod and Herodias get married. So like I said, this is a really bad, gross soap opera. It's divorce, it's adultery, it's incest, it's a soap opera. And John reproves Herod for it. I think repeatedly, actually. If you look over at Matthew 14.1, it's sometimes fun as you read the Gospels to try to put the stories together. Matthew 14.1 is a little later on from when Luke's writing. And it says, when Herod had finally heard about Jesus, at that time, Herod, Matthew says, heard about the fame of Jesus, and Herod was feeling guilty about what he had done, and he said, this is John the Baptist, he has been raised from the dead, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her, and I guess what I'm underlining is had been saying. It doesn't seem like this is something John just said. This is something he was saying, which took courage and was tough, of course, to confront sin like that. But it was also kind for John to point out Herod's sin because sin has consequences. And actually, as you go on in history, you see that Herod's rebellion against God with Herodias doesn't end up bringing him joy. It doesn't make his life easier. It's actually ironic because sometimes people think the way of Holiness is hardest, but no, you, you pay a price for living a wicked life, and that price is much higher. John might have thought, or Herod might have thought John was trying to stop him 
from experiencing joy, but the reality was the opposite. If anyone is going to experience real, genuine, lasting pleasure, it's in obedience. And so John, as he called Herod to repentance, was showing him mercy because sin has consequences. It's ultimately a a happiness thief, and we see that here in Herod. For one thing, because Herod marrying Herodias made the father of his former wife, that Arab king, so angry that he ended up waging war against Herod. And he really did some serious damage as a result, to the point where Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, said that people thought the reason this king was able to defeat Herod so easily was as a judgment from God on Herod for what he had done to John. And that wasn't where it ended either, because later when Tiberius died, and Tiberius was the emperor, remember, the next emperor was Gaius, and he gave Herod Philip's rule to someone named Herod Agrippa, who was Herodias's brother. Um, but this made Herodias mad, you know, sisters. And so she convinced Herod Antipas to go to Rome and complain about Herod Agrippa, her brother, being given this power. And he didn't want to at first because he was pretty old, but she kept pushing him. And so he did travel to Rome. And as he got to talk to the Caesar and, and tell him about his problems with Agrippa, pretty much at that very moment, they say, the Caesar was reading a letter from Agrippa with all sorts of formal charges against this Herod, Herod Antipas, and some of them were so substantial that Caesar took away Herod Antipas's rule and gave it to Agrippa and sent Herod and Herodias into exile instead. And while that's a lot of information, I know the point is that it's just another illustration of how sin promises pleasure but steals it instead. And so as John stands in front of Herod and calls on him to repent, this is not John the Baptist being unkind at all, but extending actually grace to this person who was a member of a race that Jews normally hated. And that's true any time, actually, that someone confronts you biblically for your sin. That is not unkind in and of itself for someone to tell you this is wrong and you need to turn from it. That's kind, and kindness that you don't even deserve. And yet what we find is that Herod, in spite of this kindness, hardened his heart to the grace God was showing him. And Luke says, in addition to all the other evil things he had done, added this to them all, he locked up John in prison. That's how Luke puts it in verse 19. In addition, he added this to them all, almost as if this act of locking John up in prison was the absolute worst of the things he had done. And, And you can see, it really does show you something about the wickedness of man's heart, what Herod does. Because here God can go to all this effort to provide a means of forgiveness of sin. And God can send someone to tell others about the means of that forgiveness of sin. And God in his mercy can warn people what will happen if they don't turn from their sin. And even though really they're just pleading with that person to give up the very thing that's destroying them, in spite of all that, how wicked are we? Man's heart is so wicked that instead of being thankful and grateful, he gets angry and attacks the very one who's bringing them the good news, like Herod did. And, and really, apart from Christ, we're all that messed up. That's the thing. This world is, is so broken. Because, I mean, imagine being a slave to a, a terrible slave master who ridicules you, abuses you, makes an animal out of you, shows you no mercy, And then someone comes at great risk to themselves and tells you there's hope and freedom if you will turn from that slave master and leave him. Imagine you getting angry at the person who delivered that message to you and then attacking them as a result. Seems almost impossible, and yet this is pretty much the human heart. It's easy to read what Herod is doing here as so unusual. And of course, there are parts that are unusual and specific to Herod, But really, also, there are parts that are not, because the the gospel often meets with violent opposition from wicked men as they're confronted by their sin. And at first, actually, the way John confronted Herod made him so angry he wanted to kill him. Matthew 14, verse 5 tells us that. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And so it seems, getting back to the story, that Herod Antipas was a little bit of a coward, or maybe he was just a shrewd politician. Either way, uh, he hated John at first, but he wasn't willing to kill him because John had such a following, and Herod didn't want unnecessary trouble. And so instead of killing John, he just locked him up 
in one of his dungeons. And it, it was a dungeon. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian from the first century, says it was a prison named Fort Machaerus, which was located somewhere near the Dead Sea, which is sometimes called the Salt Sea, because it's one of the saltiest bodies of water on the planet. It's this big lake about nine miles wide and nearly 50 miles long, and it's surrounded by these mountainous cliffs alongside its shore, and so it's kind of beautiful, especially because the water of the Dead Sea is bright blue, but it's also hot and sticky and kind of oily, and because of its saltiness, it's so dense that if you drop an egg in it, it won't it, will, it won't sink, it will float. And they say if you put something even as big as a cow in there, it would end up floating as well. And so this is not the kind of water that you would go swimming in, but there were these thermal springs around the Dead Sea, and these thermal springs had this bubbly mineral water where you could take baths. And so Herod had a palace there, and also this prison where John was in prison for a significant amount of time. And though it was a prison, there was some freedom for John, to the point where Matthew 11 tells us that some of his friends were able to visit him, and Mark 6 tells us that he was able to preach to Herod. In fact, Mark 6, you might want to turn there, because in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, we get another twist. Even though Herod had brought John in, initially wanting to kill him, he didn't because he was afraid of what the people would do, and so he just locked him up in prison, where over time he watched John. And I saw that John was clearly someone unusual. He was a, a righteous and holy man. And so it seems that Herod ended up becoming so fascinated by John that he took advantage of the opportunity and listened to John preach. Herod feared John, Mark's writes, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly, which I note just because it's another reminder that as sinners we work in in funny ways, because we hate the gospel, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, because it exposes us, and yet at the same time, sometimes people are unusually drawn to it. Even a violent sinner like Herod, there's something compelling to them about the gospel, and I think especially about the transformation it makes in the lives of those who believe it. So I've known, I, I, I know, I've seen that, where the gospel exposes someone for their sin and they get angry. But you know, they're sometimes still drawn to hear more because they think it's interesting and they can't deny the impact it's having on the people they meet. And while that seems exciting, if they don't repent, it's dangerous because without repentance, they're still the same as they were before, only maybe now they're not angry, they're interested. But without a turn at some point, it's not really going to get any better. Like again, if you look at Herod, as Herod took note of John's life, Mark tells us that he went from hating him and wanting to kill him to actually fearing John because he could see he was a righteous and holy man, which is an interesting picture, isn't it? Because here's this powerful Herod who has locked up this prophet in a prison, and you would think, who would be afraid of whom? You would think John would have been afraid of Herod, but in reality, it's the opposite way around. The king is afraid of the man in prison. The man in power is afraid of the one who looks powerless because of the quality of his life. A holy life can be a scary thing to a sinner who's watching. But as a result, Herod becomes interested in John and listens to John like a curiosity almost because it's clear he wasn't really understanding John, but he still liked listening for some reason. But it didn't help him in the end because he didn't turn or repent. Instead, he tried to listen to the word of God while still holding on to his sin. He kept Herodias, and Herodias didn't change either. She absolutely hated John with a passion. She held a, a grudge against him, and she was just waiting for her opportunity to strike. Mark 6.19 tells us that. And Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. Which is just another sad illustration of the slavery of sin. Because who do you pity in this story? Herod is a king and Herodias is a princess, but you should pity them, not John. Because even though Herodias and Herod had all this power and John was the one locked up in prison, the reality is that Herod and Herodias were the ones in a much worse prison because Herodias was dominated by this hatred and anger and bitterness, and Herod was controlled by fear. And that's just the way it is right now. Even when a wicked man has all kinds of power and pleasure, he's often limited in his actual ability to enjoy what he has by either fear, anger, or bitterness. 
And you see this over and over where someone has so much and you think they should be so happy, but they live in fear of what people think about them or they live in fear of death or getting sick or they live in fear of what they have being taken away from them. And so yes, they eat and drink and put on a show and smile and whatnot, but if you look a little closer, while they're eating and drinking, you see they're eating and drinking in fear and worry and anxiety about all of this and that. And this fear basically strips them of most of the delight you would think they would be experiencing because of what they have. And if it's not fear that does that, it's bitterness and selfishness. And we've all seen this, where you've meet, you meet someone who has something you think should be a reason for joy, only they aren't able to enjoy what they've been given because of all the selfishness and anger and resentment and jealousy and bitterness that comes along with it. It's got to be frustrating, you know, because here's something you look at, and it should bring you joy, like Herod. He had power, and he had pleasure. He was able to do whatever he wanted. you you think that would be the good life. And then there's John, and he's only eating locusts and honey, and he's in prison And yet, really, he's more free than either Herod or his wife, Herodias, because they're chained up by their fear and bitterness. And maybe this explains, in part at least, their violent opposition to John the Baptist, because even though Herod had locked John up, Herodias wasn't satisfied. She wanted him dead. And she was constantly looking for an opportunity, and she finally got one, it seems, on Herod's birthday. Mark chapter 6, verse 21, Mark tells us, on Herod's birthday, he gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And obviously, these were wicked men, and they were rich, and so they had plenty of money to spend on bad things. And when they had a birthday party, they spent it so they could. Trivia question, just to be funny, but what are the only two birthday parties in the Bible? Uh, Pharaoh's in Genesis, and Herod's here, so... uh, Birthday parties in the Bible don't get a good rap, (laughs) but that's just to be funny. But this birthday party was a a, a bad one. They were eating and drinking and drinking and drinking and sinning and sinning, and apparently it was pretty typical when they had one of these parties. There was a point in time in the celebrations where they would have the wives leave, and so this was like a typical Roman kind of celebration party. And they had been drinking, I'm sure, up to this point, but this is where the drinking really got serious when the ladies left. And the men usually got wild as a result with their wives gone, and it became like a seriously wicked bachelor party, only without actual bachelors. And they would bring in prostitutes and actresses who were willing to do wicked things, and they would dance or sing. But in this case, Herod actually broke that custom, and instead of bringing in a prostitute or an actress, brought in his stepdaughter, whose name we know from Josephus was Salome. Mark 16:22. for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And I obviously don't want to get into what was going on here, but this wasn't something pure like a nice ballerina dance. This must have been something wicked. And Herod was like drunk at this point and with as messed up as he was, maybe even lusting after his own stepdaughter. And so he makes a promise to her and says, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And then to prove he's really serious, he says, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And so she goes to her mother and she says, for what should I ask? And you know, John's been locked up for a pretty long time now. So you would think Herodias would be over it. But that's not the way sinners usually work, apart from the grace of God. We are at war with God. It is not neutral. We are enslaved to sin. Sin is abusing us, but we don't want to be told that. And we want to silence all the voices that might possibly point out our condition to us. And so Herodias tells her daughter, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And I I don't know, maybe she was worried that her husband was going to start listening to John, or maybe it was just this hate. Either way, she would prefer to silence John so she can continue on in her sin over even half of the kingdom. You get that, right? Because here's the choice, the head of some guy on a plate or half the kingdom. Which should I choose? This is madness. But madness is the way sin works. Sin is insane. To serve sin is to become a fool ultimately. 
And as you choose to serve sin, you're choosing to turn from your own reason and understanding, and you end up making choices that don't even make that much sense, even if all you were was just another animal. I often think this when you see someone who's been given a lot of revelation. They know the Bible, and they turn from the Bible to become a flat-out unbeliever. I've seen people like that, many people like that, even people close to me. I have someone close to me. I knew him as a really intelligent person. And yet so often, after they deny revelation, they end up saying really foolish things. This guy, I feel like he's just quoting Oprah at me all the time. And he used to have original ideas. Because choosing sin doesn't make you wiser. Sin makes you do things that are stupid and bad for you, and it makes you do things you normally wouldn't want to. It is a bad master. Like take... Herod, because Mark tells us that when she asked for the head of John the Baptist, verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And I know we read that and we feel bad for John the Baptist, and we should, but if you really want to pity anyone, again, it's Herodias and Herod. These two are pitiful. Because Herod, even though he's a king, he is so in fear of what people think that he can't even bring himself to say no to his niece when she asks him for something as awful as a head on a plate. That is not power. That is weakness. As one old theologian said, wicked men are very obedient servants to sin. For the wicked man, all things in the world must give way to the commands of sin. The commands of God must not stand in competition with them, but must all bow down and be trampled upon by sin. Even his own interest and happiness must give place when sin requires it. And so devoted are wicked men to their Lord and Master's sin that they will rather burn in hell forever than disobey him and rebel against him. They stand ready to be sent on any errand that, that sin requires them to go on. They wait at sin's gates and watch at the posts of his doors like an obedient slave to hear what commands he has for them to do. Thus, if sin requires them to steal, swear, defraud, or commit fornication, or even chop off someone's head, it is done. If sin commands them to do that which tends to their own ruin and destruction, it is done. If sin commands them to run and jump into the bottomless pit, the sinner immediately obeys and runs with all his might towards this pit of fire and brimstone. And whatever fears and dreadful apprehensions he may have on his mind, yet he is such a devoted servant to sin that it shall be performed. Thus he is entirely given up to obey this tyrant, sin. Like Herod here, who's doing what he wouldn't necessarily want to do. And it could be like maybe some of you. Because you do what sin asks you to do. And you do that even though you know it's going to cost you. When it's going to make your life more difficult. And, it, and, and what is even worse, it could be for some of you that your desire for sin causes you to turn on the very ones who are sharing the message that could save you. Which is when you're really in trouble. When someone loves you enough to speak to you about your sin and calls you to turn from it, and you end up attacking the person who's trying to help. This is the way we're seeing that sin worked with Herod, Herodias, and John the Baptist. And you know, I think even more significantly, it's the way that sin worked in the end with the religious leaders of the Jewish people and Jesus. And now we're kind of back to the point of this text. Because the thing is, John's a forerunner. John's a forerunner. That's part of why Luke brings him up here, why Luke talks about him in chapter 3. And that's why I'm taking all this time right now. Because really, like I said, in verses 18 through 20, Luke is introducing us to the problem. And he's using John. John is such a good illustration. Because basically, you look at Luke, and everything that happens to John happens to Jesus later. That's how John works. He's not just a forerunner with his message. He's a forerunner with his life. So if you think about John's life a little, how's it begin? An angel shows up to announce John's birth. Then what happens? An angel shows up to announce Jesus' birth. Later, people are amazed when John is born. And you know what? People are praising God when Jesus is born as well. 
Luke says, John grew and became strong in spirit. And then he says, Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. John goes into the wilderness, and then after Jesus is baptized, where does he go? The Holy Spirit takes him into the wilderness. Read Luke 4. Matthew tells us that John's message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark tells us that Jesus' message was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The crowds were amazed by John. The crowds were amazed by Jesus. The Pharisees didn't believe John. The Pharisees didn't believe Jesus. A couple of John's disciples came to get his body after he died to bury him. Luke will tell us about some followers of Jesus who do the same. Everything that happens to John happens to Jesus later. In other words, he's a preview. And him getting locked up here is a preview of the whole problem Luke's going to have to solve for us in this gospel. Because after chapters 1 and 2 and what we've seen in the first 17 verses of chapter 3, we might think this was going to be the moment for the Israelites. Because here they have got God sending this Messiah into the world to provide the salvation he promised. And so you would think this would be the greatest moment in their nation's history. But as we read the gospel of Luke, we're going to see that while the crowds were excited for a while, in the end the Religious leaders take this Messiah that God sent and crucify him. They hate him with a passion. And ultimately, it's because wicked men would rather have their sin than, than Jesus. Just like way back at the beginning, we are seeing with Herod and John. The, the good news of the gospel often meets with violent opposition from wicked men as they're confronted with their sin. And from the beginning of Luke, it's important for us to know this because it's going to help us have the right expectations. It is easier to be certain when you're not surprised. And one big thing Luke's going to make clear in this gospel is that you most definitely should not be surprised when things don't go the way you expect. It doesn't mean God's plan is off track at all. In fact, it's part of his plan. Because we are not living in the era of glory now. That's part of the purpose of Luke, to teach you that. We are not living in the era of glory now. This is the era of the cross. And you see that from the beginning. John preached the gospel and was put in prison. And later, Jesus, who is the gospel is going to be taken and nailed to a cross. And one big thing Luke wants you to know is that is the paradigm right now for us as well. If anyone wants to come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And that reality might frighten us a bit. And, and when it happens it might confuse us as well and it might seem like a problem is God really at work is God keeping his promises when all these bad things happen it, it seems like a problem to us and yet Luke's writing this gospel to show you that it's not a problem for God he's going to show you he's going to prove that even though this is how men responded to this offer of salvation that God was so graciously making from the beginning by taking this great man, John the Baptist, and killing him, and by taking his son, Jesus, and crucifying him, Luke is going to show that all of this evil did not cause God to swerve from his plan to provide salvation. And it did not stop God from actually accomplishing that plan to provide salvation. That should get at least an amen, because that's awesome news. That, that changes everything. Do you understand? That reality changes everything. The violent opposition we see from wicked men to the good news of the gospel does not stop God from accomplishing his plan. In fact, the exact opposite. So if you've been coming the past few weeks and hearing all this about God's great plan to reverse the curse through Jesus, and you're thinking, that sounds great, but wasn't Jesus crucified? I mean, you're saying the good news is that everything's going to be transformed. There's going to be a reversal of the curse. God's going to, God's going to change the social order. But uh, it doesn't look like it at the end, you know. Wasn't Jesus crucified? 
Mark it down. Luke knows that too. Luke knows what happened to Jesus, and he knows what happened to John. And he wants you to know that John the Baptist's beheading didn't stop God's plan for John, and Jesus' crucifixion didn't stop God's plan for Jesus. It feels like a problem when you read these Old Testament promises in Luke 1 and 2, but it's not a problem. It does, though, need an explanation. And you know, I told you this is only half a sermon. And we're going to start getting that explanation next week in the next few verses. So, read the next three stories from verse 21 to 413 and see if you can see, if you can discover how Luke is helping you answer that question. How Luke, through these three stories, is at least giving you the framework to understand the solution he's going to provide in this gospel, which is that God really did accomplish and is accomplishing all that stuff that was promised in Luke 1 and 2 through Jesus. And the crucifixion wasn't like, oh, wow, it's not happening. The crucifixion was actually key to it happening. And those next three stories, even that genealogy, all those names, it's part of, it's, it's, he's actually trying to give you a little hint as to what the answer is going to be. The Bible's amazing. <laughs> Let's uh, pray. Father, help us to be interested in what you're interested in. Uh, and uh, you're interested in your great plan to glorify Jesus by reversing the curse. That should be interesting to us, how you're going to solve all the problems of the universe. Of course, something is wrong in our hearts that we're sometimes more interested by, like, um, jingle bells or, or just silly, trivial things than we are actually the, the plan to fix everything that's wrong. And uh, so we just pray, even as we study your word, that you'll just keep, Spirit of God, keep working in our hearts to to. Be amazed by what is amazing, and would you produce the certainty that we need about the story that you've told us so that we can live lives that are transformed. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.